0: Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, our King Day special. So many fought for so long for Martin Luther King Day to be a national holiday. Part of the price we paid in winning that holiday is the increasing sanitizing of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, whose words are all too often twisted, taken out of context, by those who are part of the right wing to justify their white supremacist ideas and practices. But Dr. King was a radical. His Beyond Vietnam speech is but one example of that. Today, we bring you a reading of that speech. Dr. King delivered his now famous Beyond Vietnam, Time to Break the Silence speech exactly one year from his assassination in 1967. He spoke out against war. Yet decades later, the nation and the world continue to be embroiled in wars and coup d'etat and destabilization of elected governments, all of which means paying the price not only in lives, but in poverty as billions of resources go to war rather than towards the caring of people and the natural world a series of readings of dr martin luther king's beyond vietnam speech were organized by the california poor people's campaign throughout the state during april of 2022 today we bring you one of those readings done by residents of wonder valley an unincorporated area of san bernardino county as well as from the towns of 29 Palms and Joshua Tree in California's high desert. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women Communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics now for our news headlines.
1: For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onnestead. The death toll from a weekend Russian missile strike on an apartment building in Dnipro, Ukraine, has climbed to 44. The victims of the deadliest attack on civilians this year included five children. 20 people remain missing, but officials have ended their search and rescue efforts. Authorities say 79 people were injured, including 16 children, and 44 people were rescued. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is calling for more arms. Can
2: you...
3: Can Russian terror be stopped? Yes. It is possible to do it somehow differently than on the battlefield in Ukraine? Unfortunately, no. It can and must be done on our land, in our sky and on our seas. What is needed for this? Those weapons which are in the depots of our partners and which our soldiers are waiting for so
1: much. Meanwhile, Russian soldiers appear to have nearly surrounded the city of Bakhmut, which Ukrainian soldiers have been fighting to retain control of. This soldier spoke to Al Jazeera amidst shelling and firing in the background.
4: When
5: we talk about the direction of
4: Bakhmut.
5: We're talking about the whole front line. They're trying to get into the city from every direction, from the north, from the east and the south.
1: Ukraine's first lady scolded world leaders and corporate executives at the World Economic Forum's annual gathering in Switzerland for not using all their influence to support Ukraine and stop Russia's war. As the anniversary of the war nears, Olena Zelensky spoke amid panels on everything from global recession to climate change.
0: What will happen to inflation when state borders start to collapse and the integrity of countries is trampled on by those who want it? How can the world combat climate change if it hasn't even stopped the burning of entire cities in Ukraine? This is what Russia is doing with its artillery, with its missiles, with its Iranian drones. And you know, the Russian aggression was never intended to restrict itself to the Ukrainian borders. This war could go further.
1: Olena Zolensky. Anti-poverty group Oxfam says companies making big profits as inflation surges should face windfall taxes to help cut global inequality. It's one of the recommendations in a report released ahead of the World Economic Forum. It says over the past two years, the world's super-rich 1% have gained nearly twice as much wealth as the remaining 99% combined. President Joe Biden is set to host Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte for talks. The U.S. administration is looking to persuade the Netherlands to further limit China's access to advanced semiconductors with export restrictions. The talks are also expected to cover the country's efforts to thwart Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine in an upcoming democracy summit. An estimated 100,000 Israelis protested the country's new ultra-conservative government over the weekend in the rain, some defiantly waving Palestinian flags in response to a new law that bans waving that flag in public, calling it a symbol of terrorism. The actions come as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's ruling coalition of Orthodox, Zionist, and anti-gay lawmakers have imposed a series of measures against the Palestinian Authority and its people, including a moratorium on Palestinian construction in the West Bank, where Israel wants to increase Jewish settlements. It's also revoked travel cards for some Palestinian officials, including its foreign minister, restricting his movement in and around the occupied West Bank. Human rights group Amnesty International says the actions are designed to silence dissent and restrict protests. On Martin Luther King Jr. Day, civil rights leaders announced the 60th anniversary March on Washington will take place August 28th at the nation's capital. Here's a Reverend Al Sharpton.
6: When we've seen hate crimes and hate at a higher level than we've seen in many years, which is why we have called on our Jewish leaders and our Latino ex-leaders and our Asian leaders and LGBTQ and Native American leaders to join with us in Washington this year for the 60th anniversary to march against hate, to march against homophobia, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, We need to go back to Lincoln Memorial in the footsteps of Dr. King and stand up against hate together.
1: 10 leading economic organizations also launched a national campaign called Full Employment for All, calling for a federal program for subsidized employment targeted towards communities that face high rates of unemployment even during periods when the national unemployment rate is low largely communities of color. Algernon Austin is Director for Race and Economic Justice at the Center for Economic Policy Research.
7: Martin Luther King, in his last year of his life, he's working on a poor people's campaign and very much concerned about the issue of poverty in the United States. One thing that Dr. King as and Peretta Scott King advocated for was for a federal jobs program. Um, So the federal government would subsidize uh, employment, and this could this could be public sector employment. Um, It could also uh, support uh, employment in the nonprofit nonprofit sector or the for profit sector. Uh, the the goal is job creation in these communities that, that have been left behind.
1: He says similar programs have occurred before at the state level and also federal level, most notably during FDR's New Deal in the 1930s. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio.
0: Those were our news headlines. And now we go directly to the reading of Dr. Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech read by residents of the California high desert. On this day of remembrance, we are welcoming you to this high desert reading. The speech was given exactly one year to the day prior to Dr. King's assassination. And today across the state of California, 54 readings of Dr. King's speech will take place by those who responded to the call by the California Poor People's Campaign for readings to take place in communities across the state. For the next hour, readers who reside in some rural areas of the Mojave Desert, including from Joshua Tree, 29 Palms, Wonder Valley, will read Dr. King's speech. We want to thank Pacifica Radio's Sojourner Truth for organizing our live stream. And also thanks to Faye Kennedy, a co-chair of the California Poor People's Campaign, as well as Jackie Cabasso with the Bay Area PPC for coordinating the statewide events. Today's readings are particularly significant as the world is reminded of the brutality of war. Given the horrors we're now witnessing of the war in the Ukraine, as in any war, first of all, women and children are all too often the innocent victims of war. We are also grieving for the soldiers who are losing their lives. There are some mother's daughter, some father's child, some mother's son, some father's son, as well as the suffering of the families of those killed and injured physically, emotionally, and spiritually by war. Some of us work towards and hope for and long for a peaceful world where the caring of people and our beautiful planet are the priority, not war and destruction. When Dr. King gave his Beyond Vietnam speech The United States was embroiled in the Vietnam War and the country was in turmoil as peace activists resisted the draft and anti-war and civil rights protesters took to the streets. Dr. King's speech laid bare the relationship between war abroad and racism and poverty being challenged by the civil rights movement at home. His speech at the time was controversial as Dr. King now opposed war, racism, and poverty. The national co-chairs are Bishop William Barber III and the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, both whose liberatory faith is grounded in dignity and justice for all, no matter one's race, sexual orientation, or political party. And today, One day after the nation marked the National King Day holiday, let us remember Dr. Martin Luther King by sharing with you a community reading of Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech. I come to this
5: magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join with you in this meeting because I am in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statement of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord with its opening lines. A time comes when silence is betrayal. The time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexed as they often do, in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty but we must move on. Some of us have already begun to break the silence of the night, have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony, but we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision, but we must speak and we must rejoice as well. For surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the proselytizing of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of the firm descent, based upon mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movement well and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance. For we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Over the
3: past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of this concerns, this query has often loomed large and loud. Why are you speaking about war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, although I often understand the source of their concern, I am nevertheless greatly saddened, for such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment, or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstandings, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, why I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, the church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. I come to this platform tonight to make a passionate plea to my beloved nation, This speech is not addressed to Hanoi or to the National Liberation Front. It is not addressed to China or to Russia, nor is it an attempt to overlook the ambiguity of the total situation and the need for a collective solution to the tragedy of Vietnam. Neither is it an attempt to make North Vietnam or the National Liberation Front paragons of virtue, nor to overlook the role they can play in a successful resolution of the problem while they both may have justifiable reason to be suspicious of the good faith of the United States, life and history give eloquent testimony to the fact that conflicts are never resolved without trustful give and take on both sides. Tonight, however, I wish not to speak with Hanoi or the NLF, but rather to my fellow Americans who, with me, bear the greatest responsibility in ending a conflict that has exacted a happy
7: price on both continents. The importance of Vietnam. Since I am a preacher by trade, I suppose it is not surprising that I have seven major reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. There is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the buildup in Vietnam, and I watched the program broken and eviscerated as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic, destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps the more tragic recognition when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home, It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the Black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. So we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realize that they would never live on the same block in Detroit. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor.
6: My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially in the last three summers. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles will not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change must come most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they asked, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They asked if our own nation was in using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the change it wanted. The questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of hundreds of thousands trembling under violence, I cannot be silent. For those who ask the question, aren't you a civil rights leader and thereby mean to exclude me from the movement for peace? I have this further answer. In 1957, when a group of us formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference who chose as our motto to save the soul of America, we are convinced that we could not limit our vision to certain rights for black people, but instead affirm the conviction that America would never be free or saved from itself. People but instead affirm the conviction that America would never be free and save itself unless the descendants of its slaves were loosed completely from the shackles they still wear. In a way, we are agreeing with Langston Hughes, the black board of Harlem who had written earlier, oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me. And yet I swear this so, America will be. Now it should be it can decently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes wholly poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. It can never be saved so long as it destroys the deepest hopes, men to the war over. So it is that those of us who are yet determined that America will be or led down the path of protest and dissent, working for the health of our land, as if the weight of such a commitment to the life and health of America were not enough. Another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1964, and I cannot forget that the Nobel Prize for Peace was also a commission, a commission to work harder than I've ever worked before for the Brotherhood of Man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national allegiances. But even if I were not present, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me, why am I speaking against the war? Could it be that they do not know the good news was meant for all men, for communists and capitalists for their children and ours, for black and white, for revolutionary and conservative, Have they forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved all his enemies so fully that he died for them? What then can I say to the Cong or Castro or male as a faithful minister of this one? Can I threaten them with death or must I not share with them my life? Finally, as I try to delineate for you and for myself, the road that leads from Montgomery, to this place. I would have offered all that was most valid if I simply said that I must be true to my conviction, that I share with all men the calling to be a son of the living God. Beyond the calling of race or nation or creed is this vocation of sonship and brotherhood. And because I believe that the father is deeply concerned, especially for his suffering, and helpless and outcast children. I come tonight to speak for them. This I believe to be the privilege and the burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties, which are broader and deeper than nationalism and which go beyond our nation's self defined goals and positions. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voices, for victims of our nation, and for those who call for those it calls enemy. But no document from human hands can make these humans any
8: less our brothers. As I ponder the madness of Vietnam and search within myself for ways to understand and respond to compassion, my mind goes constantly to the people of the peninsula. I speak not now not of the soldiers of each side, not of the Jan- in Saigon, but simply of the people who have been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them, too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution there until some attempt is made to know them and hear their broken cries. They must see Americans as strange liberators. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after a combined French and Japanese occupation and before the Communist Revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh, even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document, Of freedom. We refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in reconquest of the former colony. Our government felt that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence, and we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, We rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination and a government that had been established, not by China, for whom the Vietnamese government, for the Vietnamese have not agreed great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For the peasant, this new government meant real land reform. One of the most important needs in their lives. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their aborted efforts to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war course, even before the French were defeated in Dambi, they began to despair of the reckless action, but we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. Soon we would be paying almost the full cost of this tragedy attempt, recolonization. After the French were defeated, it looked as if independence and land reform would come again through the Genoa agreement. But instead, they, there came the United States determined that Ho should not unify the temporarily divided nation and the peasant watched again as we supported one of the most vicious modern dictators, our chosen man, Premier Dem. The peasants watched and cringed as them ruthlessly routed out all opposition, supported their extortionist landlord and refused even to discuss reunification with the North. The peasants watched as all was presided over by U.S. influence and then by increasing numbers of U.S. troops who came to help quell the insurgent That Dem's methods had aroused. When Dem was overthrown, they may have been happy, but the long line of military dictatorships seemed to offer no real change, especially in terms of their need for land and peace. The only change came from America as we increased our true commitments in support of government, which were singularly corrupt, in-depth, and without popular support. All the while, the people read our leaflets and received regular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. Now there languished under our bombs and considered us not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemies. They moved sadly and apocalyptically as we heard them off the land of their fathers into concentration camps where minimal social needs are really met. They know they must move or be destroyed by our bombs. So they go primarily women and children and aged. They watched as we poisoned their waters, as we killed a million acres of their crop. They must sweep as the bulldozers roar through their acres, their areas, preparing to destroy the precious trees. They wander into the hospitals with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one vet Kong inflict injuries. So far, we may have killed a million of them, mostly children. They wandered into the towns and see thousands of children homeless without clothes, running in pack on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by other soldiers as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to the soldiers soliciting for their mothers.
9: What do the peasants think as we ally ourselves with the landlords and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform? What do they think as we test our latest weapons on them, just as the Germans tested our new medicine and new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe? Where are the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be building? Is it among these voiceless ones? We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. We have cooperated in the crushing of the nation's only non-communist and revolutionary political force, the unified Buddhist church. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon. We have corrupted their women and children and killed their men. Now there is little left to build on, save bitterness. Soon the only solid physical foundations remaining will be found at our military bases and in the concrete of the concentration camps we call fortified hamlets. The peasants may well wonder if we plan to build our new Vietnam on such grounds as these. Could we blame them for such thoughts? We must speak for them and raise the questions they cannot raise. These two are our brothers. Perhaps the most difficult, but no less necessary task is to speak for those who have been designated as our enemies. What of the National Liberation Front, that strangely anonymous group we call VC or communist? What must they think of us in America when they realize that we permitted the repression and cruelty of them, which helped to bring them into being as a resistance? What do they think of our condoning the violence which led to their own taking up of arms? Can they believe in our integrity when we now speak of aggression from the North, as if there were nothing more essential to the war How can they trust us when now we charge them with the violence after the murderous reign of Diem and charge them with violence while we pour every new weapon of death into their land? Surely, we must understand their feelings even if we do not condone their actions. Surely, we must see that the men we supported press them to their violence. Surely, we must see that our own computerized plans of destruction simply dwarf their greatest acts. How do they judge us when our officials know that their membership is less than 25% communist and yet insist on giving them the blanket name? What must they be thinking when they know that we are aware of their control of major sections of Vietnam and yet we appear ready to allow national elections in which this highly organized political parallel government will have no part? They ask how we can speak of free elections when the Saigon press is censored and controlled by the military junta, and they are surely right to wonder what kind of new government we plan to help form without them, the only party in real touch with the peasants. They question our political goals and they deny the reality of a peace settlement from which they will be excluded. Their questions are frighteningly relevant. Is our nation planning to build on political myth again and then shore it up with the power of new violence? Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weakness of our own condition. Sure, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition.
4: So too with Hanoi. In the north, where our bombs now pummel the land, and our minds endanger the waterways, we are met with a deep but understandable mistrust. To speak for them is to explain this lack of confidence in Western words and especially their distrust of American intentions now. In Hanoi are the men who led the nation to independence against the Japanese and the French. The men who sought membership in the French Commonwealth and were betrayed by the weakness of Paris and the willfulness of the colonial armies. It was they who led a second struggle against the French domination at tremendous costs and then were persuaded to give up the land they controlled between the 13th and 17th parallel as a temporary measure at Geneva. After 1954, they watched us conspire with Diem to prevent elections which would surely have brought Ho Chi Minh to power over a united Vietnam. And they realized they had been betrayed again. When we ask why they do not leap to negotiate, these things must be remembered. Also, it must be clear that the leaders of Hanoi considered the presence of American troops in support of the Diem regime to have been the initial military breach of the Geneva agreements concerning foreign troops. And they remind us that they did not begin to send any large number of supplies or men until American forces had moved into the tens of thousands. Hanoi remembers how our leaders refused to tell the truth about the earlier North Vietnamese overtures of peace, how the president claimed that none existed when they had clearly been made. Ho Chi Minh has watched as America has spoken of peace and built up its forces. And now he has surely heard of the increasing international rumors of American plans for an invasion of the North. He knows the bombing and shelling and mining we are now we are doing as part of traditional pre-invasion strategy. Perhaps only his sense of humor and of irony can save him when he hears the most powerful nation in the world speaking of aggression as it drops thousands of bombs on a poor, weak nation more than eight thousand miles away from its
0: shores. We're going to take a station break. When we return, we'll continue the reading of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's Prophetic Beyond Vietnam speech. We'll be right back.
3: This is Brother Cornell West, and you are listening to Sojourner Truth with host my dear sister Margaret Prescott.
0: You are listening to Sojourner Truth If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. And you can also check out our website at SoTrueRadio.org and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio. And we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud today. We'd like to give a shout out to all of our SoundCloud listeners in the high desert, the Mojave Desert of California. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our residents in the Caribbean region. At this point,
2: I should make it clear that while I have tried in these last few minutes to give a voice to the voiceless in Vietnam and to understand the arguments of those who are called enemy, I am as deeply concerned about our troops there as anything else. For it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We are adding cynicism to the process of death, for they must know that after a short period there, that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved. Before long, they must know that their government has sent them into a struggle among Vietnamese And the more sophisticated surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create hell for the poor. This madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and a brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak for the poor of America who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home and deaths and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as an American to the leaders of my own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. This is the message of the great Buddhist leaders of Vietnam. Recently, one of them wrote these words. Each day, the war goes on, the hatred increases in the heart of the Vietnamese and in the hearts of those of humanitarian instinct. The Americans are forcing even their friends into becoming their enemies. It is curious that the Americans who calculate so carefully on the possibilities of military victory do not realize that in the process they are incurring deep psychological and political defeat. The image of America will never again be the image of revolution, freedom, and democracy, but the image of violence and militarism. End quote. If we continue, there will be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. It will become clear that our minimal expectation is to occupy it as an American colony, and men will not refrain from thinking that our maximum hope is to goad China into a war so that we may bomb her nuclear installations. If we do not stop our war against the people of Vietnam immediately, the world will be left with no other alternative than to see this as some horribly clumsy and deadly game we have decided to play.
10: The world now demands a maturity of America that we may not be able to achieve. It demands that we admit that we have been wrong from the beginning of our adventure in Vietnam, that we have been detrimental to the life of the Vietnamese people. The situation is one in which we must be ready to turn sharply from our present ways. In order to atone for our sins and errors in Vietnam, we should take the initiative in bringing a halt to this tragic war. I would like to suggest five concrete things that our government should do immediately to begin the long and difficult process of extracting ourselves from this nightmarish conflict. One, end all bombing in North and South Vietnam. Two, declare a unilateral ceasefire in the hope that such action will create the atmosphere for negotiation. three take immediate steps to prevent other battlegrounds in Southeast Asia by curtailing our military buildup in Thailand and our interference in Laos. Four, realistically accept the fact that the National Liberation Front has substantial support in South Vietnam and must thereby play a role in any meaningful negotiations and in any future Vietnam government. Five, set a date that we will remove all foreign troops from Vietnam in accordance with the 1954 Geneva Agreement. Part of our ongoing commitment might well express itself in an offer to grant asylum to any Vietnamese who fears for his life under a new regime, which included the Liberation Front. Then we must make what reparations we can for the damage we have done. We must provide the medical aid that is badly needed, making it available in this country if necessary. Protesting the war. Meanwhile,
11: we in the churches and synagogues have a continuing task while we urge our government to disengage itself from a disgraceful commitment We must continue to raise our voices if our nation persists in its perverse ways in Vietnam. We must be prepared to match actions with words by seeking out every creative means of protest possible. As we counsel young men concerning military service, we must clarify for them our nation's role in Vietnam and challenge them with the alternative of conscientious objection. I am pleased to say that this is the path now being chosen by more than 70 students in my own alma mater, Morehouse College, and I recommend it to all who find the American course in Vietnam a dishonorable and unjust one. Moreover, I would encourage all ministers of draft age to give up their ministerial exemptions and seek status as conscientious objectors. These are the times for real choices and not false ones. We are at the moment when our lives must be placed on the line if our nation is to survive its own folly. Every man of humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his convictions, but we must all protest. There's something seductively tempting about stopping there and sending us all off on what in some circles has become a popular crusade against the war in Vietnam. I say we must enter the struggle, but I wish to go on now to say something even more disturbing. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. And if we ignore this sobering reality, we will find ourselves organizing clergy and layman concerned committees for the next generation. They will be concerned about Guatemala and Peru. They will be concerned about Thailand and Cambodia. They will be concerned about Mozambique and South Africa. We will be marching for these and a dozen other names and attending rallies without end, unless there is significant and profound change in American life and policy. Such thoughts take us beyond Vietnam, but not beyond our calling as sons of the living God. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. During the past 10 years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression which has now justified the presence of US military advisors in Venezuela. This need to maintain social stability for our investment accounts and for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala. It tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Colombia and why American Napalm and Green Beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. It is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Increasingly, by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken. The role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investment. I'm
12: convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing oriented society to a person oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritans on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice of which produces beggars needs reconstructing. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say, this is not just. It will look at our allegiance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say, This is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and save war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm or filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into veins of people normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. America the richest and most powerful nation in the world, can well lead this way in this revolution of values. There is nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. There is nothing to keep us from molding a recalcitrant status quo with bruised hands until we have fashioned it into a brotherhood.
13: This kind of positive revolution of values is our best defense against communism. War is not the answer. Communism will never be defeated by the use of atomic bombs or nuclear weapons. Let us not join those who shout war and through their misguided passions urge the United States to relinquish its participation in the United Nations. These are the days which demand Wise
14: restraint,
13: the seeding of red, and calm reasonableness. We must not call everyone a communist or an appeaser who advocates the feeding of red China in the United Nations and who recognizes that hate and hysteria are not the final answers to the problems of these turbulent things. We must not engage in negative anti-communism, but rather in positive thrust for democracy, realizing that our greatest defense against communism is to take offensive action on behalf of justice. We must... Would positive action seek to promote those conditions of poverty, insecurity, and injustice, which are fertile soil in which the seeds of communism grow and fell? People are important. These are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against all the systems of exploitation and oppression and out of the wounds of a frail world. New systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, morbid fear of communism, and our pruneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch-anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has the revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions initiated. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world, declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores, and thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight. A genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become
10: ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve
13: the best in their individual societies.
14: This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an embracing and unconditional love for all men. This oft misunderstood and misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for survival of man. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. The Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of John, St. John. Let us love one another For love is God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate or bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Tony B says, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today we are confronted with the fierce urgency of now in this unfolding conundrum of life and history there is such a thing as being too late procrastination is still the thief of time life often leaves us standing bare naked and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at the flood. It ebbs. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is deaf to every plea and rushes on. Over the bleached bones and jumbled residue of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words, too late. There is an Invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today. Nonviolent coexistence or violent co-annihilation.
15: We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world a world that borders on our doors. If we do not act, we surely will be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Now let us begin. Let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. This is the calling of the sons of God, and our brothers wait eagerly for our response. Shall we say the odds are too great? shall we tell them the struggle is too hard? Will our message be that the forces of American life militate against their arrival as full men and we send our deepest regrets? Or will there be another message of longing, of hope, of solidarity with their yearnings, of commitment to their cause, whatever the cost? The choice is ours. And though we might prefer it otherwise, we must choose in this crucial moment of human history. As that noble bard of yesterday, James Russell, Russell Lowell eloquently stated, once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight. And the choice goes by forever, twixt that darkness and that light. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet his truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And if we will only make the right choice, we will be able to transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. If we will make the right choice, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. If we will but make the right choice, we will be able to speed up the day all over America and all over the world when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream.
0: We are out of time. I'd like to thank all of today's readers of Dr. King's speech. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, our engineer for today, Gary Baca, and our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Y'all, please stay well and safe.